But uh, good morning, I, and I pray that uh, as you guys have interacted with Omri's lesson from two weeks ago on conflict resolution, that was, that was helpful. On your homework, you were asked to consider a conflict that you'd had in the, in the past few months and to evaluate what desires and expectations that you had had which contributed to that conflict. Um, in that conflict, you were also asked, what, what must you have been believing about God and yourself and others in the heat of that conflict? And if you took the time, hopefully that was, that was just helpful to think through that. Um, the men in our small group had a good, good conversation this week thinking about these things, being informed by the book of James, specifically chapter 4, on what was the source of these quarrels and conflicts. What were the wrong motives? What pleasures and desires, self-serving preferences, lusts, gave, gave rise to this conflict, drove this conflict? What was I feeling deserving of or entitled to or or what was feeling threatened that I, that I had an inordinate desire for? Um, this past week, my oldest daughter came to me, and she was seeking my input and, she, and approval on a particular piece of clothing. And so what she had thought she had purchased when it came in the mail was just not quite what she was expecting, what she thought. So when it came, she came to me to ask me about it because she had a right suspicion that I would probably not approve. Um, there were so many things about that moment that I should have been thankful for. My daughter's own discernment, she recognized this was probably not quite up to dad's approval, or there was something questionable about it. Uh, I should have been thankful for my, my daughter's willingness to seek counsel, um, her willingness to place herself under God, God's God-ordained authority structure in the home. Um, I should have been thankful for her, her humble appeal and desire to understand why I might be concerned about this. Not just what the rule is, but why. Uh, especially as she begins to prepare to go off to college. And I don't want her just to know what my standards are, but why? So that she can be pleasing to the Lord as she lives on her own. And this should have just been a sweet time of recognizing God's work in my daughter, and then an excellent teaching opportunity to, to help my daughter more clearly understand the biblical principles um, behind maybe an unofficial house rule. But where did my sinful heart go instead? Why would my daughter even ask about this? Why would she have the audacity to, to ask about this? She knows the rules that I've established. We're only having this conversation because obedience is difficult right now. So now that she thinks the rules, my rules, are optional, she clearly doesn't respect my authority. Before I open my mouth, those are the things that are going through my heart, going through my head. So before I open my mouth, what was I believing about my daughter? The best? No, I, I assumed I knew her hidden motives. Even despite probably some evidence to the, to the contrary in terms of her, just her humility with which she approached me. What was I believing about myself? I'm worthy of respect. I deserve respect. I have the spiritual gift of reading minds and discerning motives, apparently. I believe that I shouldn't have to repeat myself ever. I've communicated in the past and... And my authority in the home should have just been heeded without question. No, it's been covered once. I shouldn't have to repeat this again. I deserve that. I was trusting in my own understanding, my own insight. Um, I believed my perception to be the right thing. 
I had a good desire for my daughter's obedience and for her to live a life that was honoring to the Lord. But that had been corrupted in that moment to, to demand to be honored in the way that I saw fit at that moment. What was I believing about God? Or rather, what was I not believing? What was I not believing about what he had revealed in his word? Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I was, I was not yielding to the Lord's wisdom and instruction about the folly of trusting in my own understanding. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. I believe that it was I who could properly assess the motives of others. But the Lord had proved the truthfulness of his word yet again. I was convinced that my way was clean. I wasn't believing God's assessment of my heart in that moment. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Um, those are the truths that I was not in that moment believing and submitting to. Fast forward to the end of the story. God is gracious. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Lord's sovereignty, the, the mis-shepherding moment ended up being me getting to confess my sin to her and model repentance and talk about sin's deceptiveness and the hidden motives of the heart. Praise the Lord. But the reason I bring this up and because I think this illustrates the connection well of our lesson two weeks ago on conflict resolution to our real disciplines. Uh, the first discipline one on the back of your notebooks, familiar by now, week 15, the faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God. No doubt, we want men to, to read God's word. Um, when it comes to shepherding our own hearts, our own hearts with God's word, faithfulness in reading God's word, those are just those are just cable stakes. I mean, that's the cost of admission. I mean, with, without reading God's word, none of the benefits that we're after are going to come. So we do want men to read God's word. Be faithful in reading God's word. Um, reading God's word is a necessary means to God revealing himself to us in his word. But reading God's word alone is not shepherding our hearts. Part of it, but it's not the entirety. And it's not the end that we're after. It's a means from us. It's the means to us from hearing from God. But when we do so for it to be profitable, we must respond by faith. We must believe it. We must respond to it with biblical faith and submission. When we believe what God says is it, what He says in His Word, when we believe what He says about sin, our motives, our hearts. And when we submit ourselves to that, we will be prompted to worship. When we truly believe what God has revealed in his word, that will produce worship. Um, discipline two, discipline three, the home, the ministry. This is the faithful leader stepping into those in his home, the lives of those in his home, those in the church, even in those in the, those in the world. What is the effect of not responding in faith to God's word when I step into my home and the lives of others in the church. Self-righteous, self-serving, self-grasping, self-seeking, blind pursuit of self. And what is the effect of that in my home? Well, 
for, for me this past week, it robbed me of an opportunity to actually have a positive, positive spiritual influence in my home. I, there is a shepherding opportunity, an opportunity to have a, a positive spiritual impact, to teach, to point to God's word that was my own sin, my own failure to shepherd my heart in that moment, robbed of me of that opportunity. So there's going to be, there's, a, there's an effect. How we're shepherding our hearts, not just not just from a qualification standpoint, but just if, if we're not shepherding our heart with God's word, if, if we're not being impacted and transformed by God's word, it's going to have a significant effect on what what is our usefulness to those in our homes? What is our usefulness to those in the church? What about the twin four? The qualifications. The faithful leader prayerfully pursues the character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church, according to First Timothy three and Titus one. Um, so, what about, what about our pursuit of elder and deacon qualifications? I think through it was my action, was my interaction, was it temperate or sober minded? Did I jump to the extremes in the moment? That moment of my thinking was I was I respectful? Was I managing my household with dignity? You know, praise the Lord, He doesn't qualify men for. Service in the church for perfect men, but sinful men. But, and at any given point, we might find ourselves, we might find ourselves sinning in these areas. But make no mistake, a man that's characterized by these things is not going to be useful in the church. It's not going to be useful in his home. And so, what we want to be after is. I want to be after a diligent pursuit of these characteristics, of these qualifications, as, as, a, mat, as, a, as a general characteristic of my life. And that doesn't happen without a daily pursuit of God's Word, without a, without a daily shepherding, not just reading God's Word, but coming to Him in prayer, depending upon His sustaining grace, His enabling grace to actually obey and to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's my encouragement to you. Um, we want to be men that are not just in the home, in the church, serving, but, we, but are actually profitable and useful to, to the Lord in our homes and in the church. And we want to be men who are pursuing those things that God has, has called. This is what, this is what a, being a faithful man looks like. This is what, these are the qualifications. And again, we're not going to be perfect, and when we stumble... God is gracious to forgive us. And we have an opportunity, even, even within the church, to have men come alongside us and help us, help us see our blind spots, help us when we recognize that we've fallen. Help me. Help me help me walk in this area. But uh, there, there is a significant connection between our pursuit of the Lord alone and when we move into our home, we move into our workplace, we move into the world, the conflicts that we find ourselves in have a direct relationship to my pursuit of my desires, myself, my preferences, and what I expect and what I think of, of what I deserve. And so I want to believe what God says. God said what God says about what's going on inside my heart, what God says about what I truly deserve. And when, when we have a right Understanding and a right appreciation of what God has said in His Word, it will, it will change the way that we interact with our families. It will change the way we interact in the church. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to go to our discussion groups.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that uh, there is grace and mercy at your throne, and that you you are a forgiving God, um, but you have given us in your word, um, you, have, you have painted a picture of what it looks like to be faithful in our homes, um, in, in this world, and Lord, may, we, we cannot do that on our own. We are absolutely dependent upon your grace and your strengthening from your spirit, Lord, um, and you have shown to us that the means by which your spirit produces growth is by the means of you speaking to us in your word. Lord, give us hearts to respond in humble faith to your word, dependent upon what only you can accomplish and the grace that you provide us with so that we, we can actually be pleasing to you, not of ourselves, but through you. Lord, may we be bold to approach you, our Father, when we, when we, when we have stumbled knowing that there is, there is grace found at the cross. But Lord, may we find the encouragement to continue to press on. Lord, you, we will one day be free of, this, of these sinful desires. When we see you as you, your son as he is, when he comes and we're transformed, we long for that day. Lord, help us to press on in faithfulness dependent upon you as we shepherd our hearts. And may that spill over into our, our lives, um, in our workplaces, in our homes, and in this church. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. David Britton, teaching about the family. Uh, many of you know David. Uh, you might be in his build discussion group. You might serve in Next Generation Ministries. Um, or you might have heard him even lead music on the occasional Sunday evening. David is a deacon at Grace Bible Church over Next Generation Ministries, um, as well as uh, a small group leader. Uh, they recently... Uh, we're, we're sent out from our group and started a new small group this past week. So um, Dave's just a faithful member of this body. He has been a believer for 36 years. It's a long time. About nine years ago, David and his, Aaron, David and his wife Erin um, came to um, Grace Bible Church in our small group. They moved up from the Tucson area. And so for the last eight or nine years, I've had the pleasure just to get to know David and Erin and, and their family as they've been part of that group. And David, is, David when I think about a teachable man... A man who trembles at God's word, who longs to better understand what God meant by what he said, who longs to submit to God's word. David, David's just at the top of that list. Um, I just really appreciate David's humility. And David loves the Lord. He loves his family. Um, he loves the church. And those, those are not competing interests for David. I mean, rather, I've, I've been able to watch David time after time lay himself down for the benefit of others. Uh, sacrificing his Saturday morning by bringing his boys to help move a family that's new to our church. Uh, drop everything to visit someone in the hospital. I've watched him after a long day of teaching and coaching and then parenting eight boys as soon as he walks into his home, pivot and then step in faithfully to participate in, the, in lead and, and encourage the men of our small group. I'm prepared to encourage and teach them from God's word. David is a faithful husband and father. He's also... Um, Convictingly, many times, and just a faithful evangelist as he shares his, his labors to bring the gospel to those whom he interacts with. Um, they also have a passion. David and Aaron have a passion for, for the family. They have adopted five boys, and he currently gets to kind of share that passion by working for a, a Christian foster care and adoption agency. So if you're interested in foster care and adopting, talk to David. 
maybe you don't want to go that far, but you think maybe I should serve in Next Generation Ministries in this church, talk to David. Um, but with that, it's my, my pleasure to introduce, introduce my, my brother, my friend, David. He's going to talk to us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, man. So we're recording? Yep. Okay. Morning. Good morning. So I am teaching uh, on discipline to the home. You have your notes for a biblical survey of the home. I wanted to give a couple teaching points before we pray. Uh, one is, you know, I was just thinking of uh, looking at all these notes and it's kind of a biblical survey, looking at a lot of passages quickly um, to kind of think of that picture of, I believe it was Nehemiah who went into the into the city uh, at night riding, I can, I can see him riding on his horse uh, to see what's the, what's the situation here, what's the circumstance before we take our next step. Um, and, you know, I think that's how you can treat these notes as we go. I, I, I wrote them so that you would not have to have a lot of writing uh, in them. I'm a big writer, uh, but that's how I wrote my notes. So there's not a lot of blanks. There's one spot for a blank. I'll make sure to, to hit that. But just a, just a tip for you to consider. I know we want to excel still more in areas that we see, like, yes, I'm doing this, um, and yes, I can grow in this. Hopefully we have that mindset. These are foundational truths, so hopefully they're, they're all, um, to some degree, at work in our life if we are a follower of Christ. So maybe just using a, a little note like E, a small E, a capital E, on a, on a point or a passage that you say, you see, yes, I'm doing that, and Lord, help me excel still more. So just, just the letter E might be helpful, or even just circling uh, a, a word uh, or a passage of Scripture that we come to, and, and uh, then you can be more like, kind of like Nehemiah, going back to this as we head into the summer and um, considering what it means to be a man of God in, in the household. Uh, to look at these truths and say, Lord, help me to look and keep on looking at what your word is calling me to be. And then uh, you don't want to give an encouragement also to single men. Um, definitely had you on my mind when I'm thinking of this. We have, we have truths about the household, about being a father, uh, about being a husband. And maybe you're not there yet. Um, and maybe you won't be there for... Uh, forever, maybe you'll be a uh, a man who's who's set apart to be useful to the master in in a, a long or forever uh, season of singleness. I don't know, but um, I want you to take these truths to heart. Is these are when I talk about being a husband or being a father, this is the kind of man that God calls all of us to be. Um, and if we don't have a wife, if we don't have eight children, we have two, or we don't have any children. Uh, this is still God's directive for our hearts, and he wants our hearts to be his. And so to allow the Holy Spirit to take these truths
choose these words about what a husband should be or what a father should be and say, Lord, I'm, I want to be that kind of man if, if and when you allow me to be a husband, if and when you allow me to be a, a father. Um, but work this in me right now, Lord. Work this in me in my relationships with women, um, young and old, in my relationships with, with children, in my relationships with, with brothers in Christ. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, so clear, so full. So helpful. Thank you for your fatherly kindness to give us such clarity in your word regarding so many life issues of how we are to live our lives. I pray that these words, your word, would be made clear and that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts as we hear your word. That we would all grow in godliness uh, through sitting under your proclaimed word, your, your taught word, your clear word. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so I wanted to start with, um, before we get to what, a, what we must be in our household, um, a lot of what's and do's and don'ts, there, I wanted to hit the why before the what. So... Today I'm going to accept for you seven categories of biblical manhood in your household, among your household. And in my study, I sought to unearth from the pastoral epistles and then working outward uh, the most clear and direct commands for men of the household of faith to live by, to heed and obey in their own household. But I want to address the why. Why are these household commands put before us? I mean... We've got a lot of one another's. Isn't one another's enough duty for us to focus our attention on? Isn't there ample evidence to make the claim that the church, the body of Christ, and how we relate to one another in love and honor and, and unity of spirit is, is the key thing or the critical or of the utmost importance? So why does the author of life, whose building is church, constructing day by day his household of faith, care to address us in our own household. Um, why is that? And I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to say the answer, but an answer is that God cares about you wherever you go and whatever business you are about. He cares about your individual growth and godliness and all aspects of your life to be lived unto him and not for men. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not for men. You've been brought into his capital H household. And you grow in his household. Your life is joined together with us. My life is set in place by God as a living stone. And we grow up in the Lord together. You and me. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 19-21. Again, I'm going to be thumbing through a, a lot of passages, so if, you just, if it helps you just to listen instead of trying to turn to everyone, that's fine. But Ephesians 2, 19-21 is that first bullet point. Paul says to the Ephesian church, So 
then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, your conduct in your household, your godliness in your household, is really ecclesiological. It's about the church. Um, there's a bigger household with a capital H that we're sitting in this room today, but we're the living stones. We are the church. Um, so his commands for me in my household, there's a lot of them, but how are we to, how are we to see those? They're not a bless, uh, they are a blessing, they're not a burden. His commands are not burdensome. His commands are a blessing. And ultimately they're to help me fit well and function well in the body of Christ the household of faith, as I am increasingly useful to the master and equipped to be, to be blessed and to be a blessing in this household called Grace Bible Church and, and in the broader church of all believers. So another why household commands. Because household commands help to train me in righteousness, to be an in-order member of the household of God, Unto the glory of God. So my second big word. Doxological. The kind of man that we are in the household. In our households. Is ecclesiological. And doxological. Um, I'm told to imitate. My elders. So I'm starting to feel the presence of Omri. Can you, can you hear it? Ecclesiological. Doxological. Um. Why household commands? Because character in the household has an impact on the character of the church. A few examples from Titus. Just uh, alluding to those. Titus 2.8. Paul speaking to Titus directly says, You be a model Christian man. So that, quote, So that any opponent may be put to shame. He says in Titus 2.10 to bond servants, slaves, Show all good faith. Why? So that in everything they, these bondservants, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And Paul says to Titus to teach all the saints in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. These things are, are excellent and profitable for people. All these commands, he lists, he lists a lot of commands in, in that passage of verses 1 through 8, but he gives the why. Again, these commands are for your good and for you to be an instrument of God's grace to others. So I commend the Titus series to you, preached by Scott Maxwell, 2015. Um, that, uh, the, the three titles of that was Sanctified Lives, Silenced Lives, and scrutinized leaders. Um, so it's on the GBC website. If you want to look at that regarding Titus. These commands and, and what it means to, uh, to be godly in our household. And in the household of faith. To be an in order Christian. 
Why household commands? Because God places a high priority on the leaders of the household of faith, right? We talked about elder qualifications. This is a high priority, you elders, for leading a body of Christ, a local congregation. Um, well, we can take that truth home with us and see this is God's heart that in the home, if you're a leader in the home, God takes this as a high priority for you uh, to, to honor him in how you live in the home. So back to my original uh, pondering, ponderings of, you know, aren't the one another commands enough just to focus on? Well, th this question comes from either immaturity or, or short-sightedness or, God forbid, hardness of heart that's evident in the unfaithful servant, Matthew 25. Remember that unfaithful servant? He's given one talent. He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. But that's not how we're to think of God as he gives us commands, as he gives us these commands, which are a blessing. Behold the kindness of God, men, as we look into specific household directives for the men in any household. So the last two bullets on this first page say, a household, as a household member, masters, slaves, sons, husbands, fathers, and then as a household leader, master, husband, father. Now I want to start with uh, the what. Although obviously in our context we're not masters or slaves, uh, though sometimes my children might beg to differ, um, nor are we slaves serving household masters. But let's look at God addressing the heart of both master and slave and make appropriate application in our household. A timeless truth found in Ephesians 6, 9 is that masters were to remember that their ultimate identity is not as master of the household, but as a slave. The master's identity is as a slave, belonging as a property of God. You belong to God. God is going to define your, your property, your days on earth, your purpose in life. God is your master. Masters. They were to do the will of God from the heart, just as bond servants were called to obey. Quote, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Masters were to wield their authority, having ceased all of their threatening, and to treat your bond servants justly and fairly. Colossians 4.1 Very clear directives for the heart of that man in his home. So first, masters, head of households, were to, to keep at the forefront of their mind their identity as adopted sons of the Father and slaves of Jesus Christ. But they also were to think of others under their authority as theirs? No, not really. As an image of God-bearer, first and foremost. I mean, consider the radical request of Paul to Philemon, the master of Onesimus, to receive him back as a beloved brother. How must that have changed the attitude of Philemon towards all of his slaves? 
If they were not believers, he now had the authority to influence them, to teach them, and to show shepherd-like care for them, even while they continued to serve in his household. We can also glean from 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Turn to that passage real quick. A godly mindset in the household. Regarding bond servants, Paul says to Timothy, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So this is a godly mindset in the household toward the unbeliever and towards the believer. The bond servants were to show all honor and then again a purpose statement so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is about the gospel. This is about the church. This is about the health of every member of the church, whether he is a master or a bond servant or single or married, or widowed, or a new believer, or a seasoned saint. And if that, ma if that master is a brother, if we have Christians in our household, small age, in your household, we're to serve them all the better because of their identity in Christ. I love my sons, I love all of them, but I think about my sons who are uh, obviously following the Lord and seeking Him and showing evidence of walking with Christ in a different way than I think of or treat uh, my other sons. Because they've now become a beloved brother in the Lord. Ultimately, they're a they're a son of the living God. And so I want to take that to heart in my own home. Um, and as I deal with people, to think of them, if they're Christians, I want to give them a, a special honor in how I treat them. So we're on page two and the back of page one. More explicitly with household commands, the kind of man God calls us to be in our household. And letter A is a managing well man. This command is specifically required as evidence for a qualified elder or deacon. Ben just talked to us about it. It's one of many things they must be exemplary in, yet certainly what every man must seek to do well. He must manage his household well. But this word manages is likely more robust than our typical managerial use of the word. How you doing, Bill? I'm managing. What do you mean? You know, life's busy, kids are growing, days are flying by, bills are getting paid, I'm managing. Oh, so you mean you're enduring and not needing crisis intervention right now. Yeah, 
That's what I say. I'm managing. This word managing is much more than Bill's use of managing. It's, it's more than enduring or moving things from point A to point B. It literally is to stand before. It's a leadership word. It means to guide, to oversee, to diligently take the lead. This is the same word used for pastors in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 1 Timothy 5, 17. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 1 Timothy 5, 17. As pastors who, quote, are over you, same word. Or pastors who rule, rule well. The ruling, over you, leading, standing the way. Setting the path. So we we are to manage, and we are to manage well. Just looking at that bullet point with well, it's it's not only inherently good, there's two words for good, but this is kind of a step beyond. It's not only good at the core, it's good in the fruit that it bears. It's aesthetically good or pleasing to the eye. This includes, but is not limited to, order in the house. Husbands are to manage uh, in concert with their wife. So this was, a, this was a surprising find for me, as I see managing, and you know what deacons must do, what elders must do, what men must do in their home. Um, but 1 Timothy 5.14 says, This command is to be something our wives assist us in as co-laborers. Paul's talking to Timothy in, in that passage about younger widows and should they marry or not marry. And he said, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So this is one, I, I feel like I'm about 20 years behind the, behind the ball in in having my wife be my helpmate in managing my home and, and leading her in that and, and setting the pace. Um, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about husbands and wives later, but, um, but this is an area that I'd really like us to take to heart and consider how you might more wisely implement your wife, if you're married, in all of the managerial ways of your home. You know, this includes leading the way in, in conflict resolution. We, had, uh, we just had our conversation about that in Bill's discussion. This includes letting her be your helpmate in financial stewardship. And thanks to Dave Bauer for those two lessons we had. This includes, of course, spiritual oversight over all in the household. Um, or, or over the people that she and you have influence in together. And this includes hospitality, uh, hospitality acts, which we'll address as a later category. But it's one of my greatest joys in life is, is one, to see my sons when they do dwell together in unity every once in a while. And, and the other is to actually be locked in hand in hand, arm in arm with my wife, um, serving in the home, serving in the church. Uh, side by side, striving for the gospel. Um, 
gospel purposes. So consider that, gentlemen, um, in being a managing well man. The next is more character, uh, but it's a seasoned, able man. Seasoned, able. So we have two seasons of life. We'll talk about young and old. Older men and younger men in Titus 2.2. 2. Reading Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then verse 6, jumping to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Younger men. Easy peasy. Self-controlled. The older men have six. You have one. Um, so here we're given six attributes to aim at for older men and one for younger men. As I look at these two verses in close proximity, I think we can take a couple principles. The first is that there seems to be a greater expectation of distinctions of godliness in older men. This reminds me of a very sobering and encouraged statement by Tom Blevins in our small group recently. As he just talked about his life, about spiritual leadership, about his children, his, his daughters, his son-in-laws. said, spiritual leadership increases with age. And that just struck me. And it was a very sobering. Uh, yet encouraging statement. I thought, yes, this is the way it ought to be. Spiritual leadership ought to be increasing with age. As we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ, God wants to bless others through us. So, may we be men who see these six descriptions of Titus 2-2 and strive after them day by day, even if we don't consider ourselves old. Sober-minded is translated as temperate in the New American Standard. It can be used in relation to alcohol, but also can be thought of as broader, to be free from negative influences, to be clear-minded, dignified, to be an honorable man, held, a man held with honor, a man who sees other people, others, as made in the image of God. A man who considers as he's talking with human beings, am I speaking to a slave of Satan or am I speaking to a slave of Christ? And I want to honor the Lord and how I treat that person. Self-controlled for the older men. We'll talk about that with younger men. But then look at the last three. Sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Sound in goes with all three of those. <clears throat> you should you should be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. The sound is where we get the word hygiene. It, it is properly at work. In health, it's in healthy condition. It's absent of corruption. This is the description of that older man's faith. Not, <clears throat> oh ye of little faith, but oh yeah, that is sound faith. That's fit faith. Sound in love. That sounds a lot like uh, Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. 
and sound in steadfastness. That's healthy endurance. Steadfastness that doesn't diminish hope over time. It doesn't wither while we wait. We have a great gift in the seasoned saints of older men in our body who demonstrate this and who strive after this kind of manhood. I pointed out one in our small group uh, as we departed from Ben's small group with, with Ken Evans, you know, and I just wondered why did it take me so long to share this with Ken Evans, a man who I met nine years ago, and he was still working, wasn't retired yet, and told me with, with eagerness about what he wants to do in retirement, how he wants to sow into the lives of other men, how he, he's looking forward to just having time to, to serve the Lord uh, with gladness. In his, house, in his home, in his household, in this household. And then nine years later, I'm saying goodbye to Ken Evans as he's staying in Ben James' small group and, and uh, telling him, this is what you said you were going to do? And then I've just been watching you for nine years and you did it. It just blessed me greatly and blessed him to hear that. But uh, I want to thank our, our men, our older men, um, I was thinking you guys might be pointing at me and saying, what do you mean, our older men? You're one of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I might get to join the 50 club in May if, if they let me in. Uh, 50 plus club. But uh, what a blessing it is to have godly older men to set the example, to set the lead, and to just strive to honor the Lord uh, day after day. So now, now you, younger men, I'll say you, not we. You're to be self-controlled. This seems to mean in every aspect. It doesn't say self-controlled here or there in, in such and such a context. It's self-controlled. So it's, it's more than just in our thought life, taking every thought captive, uh, which, of course, we need to do. But in our plans, are our, our plans submitted to his control are our eyes and our gaze the things that we you know set our set our mind on as we're going through life hey, how you doing bro um, with our electronic device in our hands uh, sinking its way into our heart are those under his control is your tongue quick to let loose with ease in, in those more casual contexts? Or are you practicing increasing self-control in your speech? So the common characteristic between young men and old men is self-control. But there's also the command often repeated, uh, there's also the common and often repeated characteristic in behavior that should mark men in their household and in all of life. And that's the, the two-word blank on letter B. So we're down here on letter B after the Tom Blevins quote. Young or old, we're to be, live peaceful lives, quiet lives, godly lives, dignified lives. And let's solve for X. Ready for X. Zealous for X. Devoted to X. Learning to devote ourselves to X. X 
Uh, classroom participation, please. X equals what? I'll just say, that's what I do with first uh, next generation ministry. Great, good works. Good works. You guys got it. I heard it out there. Somebody said it. Uh, good works. So those are the passages that the, that men, we must be about. We must be about pursuing these good works to the glory of God. Empowered by God. Not to earn his favor, but because he has set his favor upon us, we are to pursue and be zealous for and devote ourselves to good works. Which leads us to letter C. A ministering man. And we can jump immediately to Titus 3.14 regarding good works. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So when you're thinking what good works? Well, these are the type of good works to look for. And this kind of ministry-minded man includes includes his household and is commended. An example uh, found in the scriptures is Paul commending Onesiphorus um, in 2 Timothy 1, 16-18. Commends him for coming to Rome when he was in Rome. He helped me in Rome and he helped me in while I was in Ephesus. He and his, his whole household was a blessing to me. And then uh, at the end of 2 Timothy, it says, he, he mentions Aquila, the husband of Priscilla. Aquila and Prisca. And uh, their, their ministry as husband and wife. And also the household of Onesiphorus. So we're to be ministering men and dealing with uh, cases of urgent need and looking for them and, and excited when God brings us an opportunity to serve. Uh, we're to be intentional and plan it. We're also to pray for it, pray for other households in our small group that they would be um, have this ministry type of mindset wherever they go. And just let's consider how we might grow in selflessness by giving ourselves to others. And remember, or, or be informed, that your household leadership is not strictly for the members of your household while they are physically located under your roof. They are your household wherever you go. And they are your household wherever they go. Ministry and hospitality may be best suited in your home, but being a hospitable man in a hospitable household can be practiced in a variety of ways. Uh, it's meeting other people's needs. Yes, it can be having them over for dinner, um, but it can be helping somebody move. It can be watching their children while they uh, get a date night. It's the, the, the options are limitless. If we say, Lord, make me a hospitable man, my wife says our house is not fit for other human beings to come in and feel welcome because we have too many things we need to get fixed. Uh, but make me a hospitable man. 
wherever I go. A few uh, passages about being hospitable or clarifiers. To whom shall we show it? Romans 12, 13 says, it's to be practiced towards saints in need. So again, God is very kind to, to say, get your eyes open for saints, for brothers, sisters in Christ who are in need. Maybe you don't wait for them to ask. Maybe you ask them, how are you doing? Hebrews 13 says it's to be practiced towards strangers. The word's actually a stranger loving, to be hospitable. And then 1 Peter 4.9 talks about the manner in which this hospitality is practiced. And one manner is it's supposed to be practiced without grumbling. Without grumbling out loud, without having a, a heart of grumbling, you know, grin and bear it uh, as you practice hospitality in some manner. But to, to have a generosity of heart is at the heart of hospitality. So this is what we must be in our households. Next is a providing man, letter D, a providing man. Now I think when we talk about Discipline 2 at GBC, most of us are primarily thinking of the household as the people who live at my address, like a, a, census, a census count. And for sure, that is the primary um, way that we, we must take it. But I want to push back or push outward a little bit on that with reading 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. 1 Timothy 5, 3-8. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, providing man. Christians are expected to show godliness to their own household and here, that includes at least three generations. We have parents, children, grandchildren, or a child thinking of his or her parents or grandparents. Now, we all have or had parents and grandparents. But at what point do we seek to make some return to them? Do you see what this is in verse 4? Verse 4 says, what it is when we make a return. It's pleasing in the sight of God. And there are also two other main purposes. The end of verse 7, so that they may be without reproach. Reproach, an accusation that has some stick to it. But to be without reproach or above reproach is they can accuse you, but it does not stick. There's no grounds for their attack. 
And the second reason we're to make some return is, you know, back to the why. Why these commands? So the church may not be burdened. This is a little later on in verse 16 of chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 16. Paul says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So I want us to see the seriousness of this uh, providing. As much as we are able, we are to bear the burden of the needs within our own household, including extended family, as much as we're able. Obviously, we can't. Uh, maybe God in his providence will not allow us to meet their every need. But to not provide when you can is to act how? Verse 8. Worse than an unbeliever. And what is that to Paul? What is that to God? It's denial of the faith. So it's a, this is a commanded prohibition um, with Back to verse 16. Let the church not be burdened. Uh, I want you to hear that as a command. It's not, let's go to the park, or let, the, let it be. But Paul is saying, I order the church not to be burdened. Our manner of living in the household either affirms or denies the faith. This might be something where you put an E. Yes, I love my parents. I want to excel so more. Or grandparents. So. We're going to do a, a little flip of the notes. Hope it doesn't throw anybody off. But we're going to go to the end and work back towards the middle. So we're going to go G on the watchman, and then F, a father imitating man, and we're going to end with a Christ-like man in marriage. Okay. Should have changed my notes around. but um, So we're going straight to G. Letter G is on on the watchman. Remember the sobering and helpful reminders of, of Jacob Pantla regarding guarding our own heart, the vigilance with which the city, you know, the spring of water, and what would they do to protect that? First um, Timothy 6, 9 and 10 teaches us to beware of a couple of things. Beware of the desire to be rich. <clears throat> Again, as I kept studying, I kept thinking the definitions of these words are just I can't accept the David Britton definition of these words. To, to manage. Well. Uh, reproach. Here's another one. Rich. You know. We, we might think of. The richest of the rich. The top 10% of America. Um, but let's take this to heart. When you think about rich. You know. I'm, I'm rich but I'm not that rich. But see, let's see all words in the context of how does God see them? How does God see us? What does God want us to think with this command about um, be on the watch against this danger 
of desiring to be rich. So let's all just assume for a moment that in the eyes of, of most of the world, we in America are rich, no matter how high the price of gas goes. What's our charge or command uh, if we are? 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 gives us a command to be on the watch for. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there's the danger of a haughty spirit when it comes to riches. Be on watch. There's a danger to set our hope on riches gained and not on God himself. This is what Jonathan Anderson pointed to in their last sermon. He talked about Deuteronomy 11, verse 15 and following. When the Lord provides abundantly for you, Israelites, with grain and wine and oil and livestock, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods. So we must also be on the watch in our households, not only for in our hearts for riches or setting our hopes on that instead of on God, our great provider. But <clears throat> Titus 1, 10, 11 talks about false teachers. False teachers who are upsetting whole families. And we've got to be on watch for these unsettling and dangerous types of people we are to avoid. Look for their trademark. Second uh, Timothy 3, 1-9, through 9. we're not going to read that passage, but, but at the top of the list is lovers of self. You know, we, social media is, is a lover of self um, resort for people to have an immediate audience. And let's not assume that what we are hearing um, is not affecting our soul. Whether it's a podcast, whether it's, yeah, this guy just has some interesting ideas, and and uh, I know I'm guilty of that sometimes with, with uh, our particular um, guy that seems to have a lot of biblical truths, but doesn't come right out and say, you know, the Bible is God's word and our final authority. Um, and I've seen how it can affect me. But let's heed the summons of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It's a great verse for men to have in their head and to hear Paul pummel us, God in his kindness pummel us, pummel our conscience by giving four commands to men in the Lord's army. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians as fellow soldiers, he says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. These are the words that we are to be in our household. Act like men. It's actually taking the word man and turning it into a verb. Man up. 
Behave like a man. Play the man, son. Manify. That's my word. I made it up. Man up will probably stick longer than manify. But this is what we are to be on the watch for uh, in our household, to be alert. Now let's work backwards to letter F. This is for those who have children, especially in the home. We must be a father imitating man. A father imitating man. In Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4, we find the clear prohibition, do not, and a clear command, do. The prohibition is fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not rouse them to wrath. Now again, provoke, one of those words. Say, I don't, I'm not provoking. I don't provoke my children. You know? Because when I think of provoking, I think of yelling or cursing at them or sticking my finger in their chest. I don't do that. My dad did that to me. I'm never going to stick my finger in my son's chest. Um, but let's have a biblical view of provoking your children to anger. I took from uh, two great resources listed. One is uh, Successful Christian Parenting by John MacArthur. I just kind of culled from some of those from him in that first list, starting with overprotection. And then the other is uh, from Heart of Anger, 25 ways that parents can and do provoke their children to anger. So I'm going to read those and you might, if, uh, if you, you might want to use that little E for Excel still more, or, uh, or D, do this less and less, um, or circle, one that seems to be, stick out as I read it, overprotection, overindulgence, favoritism, unrealistic goals, discouragement, neglect, condescension, withdrawing love, excessive discipline. An unhealthy marriage can provoke my children to anger. Inconsistency and discipline. Hypocrisy or double standards. Promise breaking. Unhealthy comparisons or public ridicule. So, as far as, you know, this is probably the most transparent I can be in this, or I'm going to be in this part is, um, because of my lack of discipline, uh, my oldest son's 25, my youngest is six, but uh, I've let things go until I just finally got fed up. And then, and then suddenly, I deal with the issue that's been simmering and I haven't dealt with in a disciplined way. So now I go from the one where it's, you know, neglect or not dealing with a, a hard issue to suddenly excessive discipline, and which is all inconsistency in discipline. I've also, uh, the Lord has convicted me of excusing my condescension as playful humor. I'm joking, I'm joking. But really, 
a word that made somebody else laugh or snicker and, and hurt the heart of my own son. Yet through solid teaching about what provocation is uh, and through confession and repentance, God has grown me in, in, I think, every one of these areas. Does one of these prick your conscience? I do encourage you to circle it, underline it. Talk with your wife or a very close brother in Christ who can encourage you to repent of that sin, to see it for all of its ugliness, and to walk forward in a way that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. So that's the negative command. The positive command is to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The practice and the principles rightly applied to our children. Bring them up. Bring them up to maturity. You raise the bar, men, fathers, in your home. You be the one who nourishes. Bring them up in the discipline. That's in the, uh, the paideia. Tyler used to work at a school called Paideia Academy. He can tell you what it means. But it's the rearing or the training of a child in all of his or her ways. Bring them up in that kind of training. I can hear my wife now. Teach and train. Teach and train. Teach them what you want. Train them. We can do this. God can help us. Don't quit, David. Don't quit. Um, and then bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's where we get newthetic. Newthetic counseling. Putting it into the mind. Calling attention. This is what Jesus did when he pointed out to his disciples, the widow who gave more than all the rest. He called attention to it. This is how we manify. Manify in this. Man up. Don't leave it to somebody else. Plan these training times. Set apart time with your children. And take the opportunities when just in the casual, in the in the common day of life, morning and night, teaching and training, planned, premeditated, as well as God's orchestrated plan of this is something I can show my son, show my daughter, teach them with all dignity, with the love of your father and love for your father. Be that kind of father to your child more and more by the grace of God. And now the last is, we're to the end, men. A Christ-like man in marriage. If you're a husband and, and Ephesians 5 is not well-worn in your soul, please make that a highest priority. I want to quote Smedley uh, in his equipping hour last Sunday, he spoke about marriage in the context of evangelism. And this is what he said about marriage. Your marriage is to be a living picture and reflection of the gospel. The husband is to reflect Christ's love for his bride, the church. The husband does this in his love for his wife. The wife is to reflect the church's love and devotion to her savior. This is 
what the wife does in her response to her husband. So Ephesians 5, let's get it deep into our minds and hearts. Um, remember Derek Robinson saying one of the most uh, impacting sermon series forums is five, six years ago was the Ephesians series, just going through going through the book of Ephesians. So I haven't done that yet. It's one of my to-do lists is to look at, at uh, maybe not all 36 sermons, but the Ephesians 5 uh, sermons on what a husband must be. Colossians 3.19 prohibits husbands from being harsh with their wives or embittered with their wives. And we just looked at many ways a father can provoke his children to anger. So let's not define harsh in only one obvious act of brutality, such as a loud yell or abusive speech or a look of disgust. Those are obvious harsh acts. But let us let the Lord convict us of any harsh manners or mannerisms that are completely contrary to his will for us as husbands. Husbands, take the word harsh to heart, knowing that we are called to nourish and cherish our wife. Most likely it's an either or. You're either, we're either doing one or the other. We're either nourishing and cherishing her by our interaction with her right now, or it's some form of ungodly, ungodliness that the world may not call harsh, but the world is not our judge. God is our judge. Our life is open to him, and we want him to convict us when we have a heart of harshness in any way towards our wife. So let's finish today with some meditations on what it means to love our wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the first, pray for her. I wonder how many of those times when Jesus got away to pray on his own. He's praying to the Father for the church, for the disciples. Pray for her. Pray with her. We see Jesus doing this. We see Jesus making his prayers uh, known out loud. Pray with her. Know and be known by her. This is what our wives want. Our wives want this unity to know that there's no person on earth that knows me better than my husband. And my husband knows me. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. How else can we love our wife as Christ loves the church? Help her prioritize. Sorry for going over time. Almost time. Provide refreshment for her. Get her away when you can. Date night. We used to do date at eight. Our kids are in bed and, and then we have our time alone, you know, on the couch at 8, 8 p.m. Call my wife the sleep Nazi. 
If she gets those kids to bed, it's, it's amazing. Um, so that was a high priority for her. Help her to excel in being your co-laborer. We talked about that with uh, managing the house. How can we love our wife like Christ loves the church? Be with her. Be alone with her. Be alone with her intimately when it has nothing to do with uh, quote-unquote intimate moments. Sacrifice for her. Stand up for her and at times stand up to her. She is a sinner and she needs a leader and God has given you to lead her. So stand up to her with love and boldness when her mind, when her thinking is contrary to God's word, when her focus is off of what it should be. She does that for you. You do that for her. You know, we always say, this is my better half. Hey, this is my wife. This is my better half. Um, well, God's commanding men, you be the better half. You be the one who's leading her, loving her, guiding her, encouraging her, um, forgiving her, communicating her, to her your prayers for her. This is a great one. I prayed for you. Think of Jesus telling Peter, you're going to deny me, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you, and here's my prayer for you. How encouraging must that have been? Did Peter not think of that as he went out weeping? Of course he did. Of course he thought of how Jesus had prayed for him. Nourish her, cherish her, be patient with her, and be gentle to her. Thank you for your time, brothers. I want to pray and uh, pray that God would do more than we could ask or imagine in regards to our being a man of God in our household for the good of the church and for his glory. Lord, I thank you for, again, for your patient, kind, fatherly instruction and teaching to each one of us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Lord, you've caused the iniquity of us all to fall on your own son who gave himself for us. I thank you that you have given us such clear directions in your word for direction of our heart, our habits, everywhere we go, anywhere we go, in our own household and in this household of faith, Grace Bible Church. May your spirit work in the hearts of each of these men as they Consider these words. They consider the kindness of you, God, to show us these things, to remind us of these things, and to lead us in 
the everlasting way of righteous living for you. May we make it our aim to please you in all things. And thank you that you are pleased with us. You see us as your blood-bought children. We love you. Amen.